The following program is an MLWRadio.com production. Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. Las Vegas, something to wrestle with live with Bruce Pritchard and Conrad Thompson. We are coming on Saturday night, February 24th, to the House of Blues in Las Vegas, and you are not going to want to miss this. Get tickets at notarib.com. But Las Vegas, we are coming, and we are going to be live and in living color. Do not miss our only Vegas appearance for 2018. That's Saturday night, February the 24th at the House of Blues. Get your tickets at notarib.com. Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. Arcade, 605 NWA, TV title, Cajun Omni, the Bunkhouse Stampede, Flair and Horseman, Garvin, Bogey, Magnum, Dusty, Express Tag Team, Turner, Bond, and Mid-South Joint World Championship Wrestling. Talking about the great years of World Championship Wrestling, the NWA, and Jim Crockett Promotions. Tony and Friends North, they win, look, Shivani's back again, World Title Split, Off Center Stage, Bischoff, Disney, Hogan, and Nitro, New World Order, and the Crow, Thunder Russo, Arcade Champ, Vinnie Mac, Simulcast, Tony's back with Conrad, Not Your Classy Podcast, Watch Along, Try Not To Laugh, Lois Rules, Cat Bass, This Wasn't The Initial Plan, Tom Ziggs A Good Looking Man, Klondike Bill, Make A Chair, Tommy, you Come Over Here, What Happened When, WHW Monday, And Now, Let's Go To The Ring, And Here's Your Co-Host, Hey Hey, It's Conrad Thompson, Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to What Happened When? Monday on the MLW Radio Network, and the man you're here for, the voice of professional wrestling below the Mason-Dixon line, Mr. Tony Schiavone himself. Tony, what's going on, man? How are you? Conrad, how are you, buddy? Man, I'm excited. This uh, has been a pay-per-view that I've been wanted to talk. I've wanted to talk about for a long time yeah. because it feels like the beginning of the end. And it's sort of fun that you and I are taping this when we are, because this is basically the one year anniversary of our show. Isn't it something that we've been together for one year doing this? And, uh, you know, I, I know it's well documented that I didn't think it would last, uh, but it's been a great year. Thank you. Uh, thanks to everyone who's been a part of this. Uh, and it means a lot to me. If, if I can uh, say something to begin the show today, and I don't want to get too emotional or, or too sappy, uh, I... Uh, I've been making a lot of phone calls, uh, although not enough to catch up with uh, who I need to catch up with on on buying the T-shirts. And I am I am never I, I I'm always surprised. Put it this way, and shocked about what we mean to some people. Uh, I've talked to some guys who said, you know, uh, I talked to a gentleman. Uh, I don't remember his name, and I wouldn't even tell you his name if I remembered it, but. Uh, his wife had just passed away and it's he and his mm. two year old son. Uh, and the laughter that we bring to him on, uh, Mondays when we download what happened when has helped him out. I've talked to some guys who have gone through rough divorces, a guy whose father just passed away and what we mean to them, that means everything to me. And it's, it just kind of, it's, it, it really blows my mind. I, when we started this, I thought we would 
basically, you know, talk about the old days of wrestling, which we do, but we've tried to become a little bit more than that. We've, we've tried to become irreverent and funny, entertaining, uh, Tony Schiavone that you never saw, a Conrad Thompson that most people do know is funny as hell. Uh, and it's developed into something I never thought it would. These people mean the world to me, Conrad. They really do. And I, I can't, uh, describe enough how much these phone calls and being able to talk to these people one-on-one who buy the t-shirts at lowestrules.com means to what, yeah, sure. We're trying to make money for my daughter's wedding, but it's much more than that. Now it's being able to connect with these people. They all say, you're the voice of my childhood. And I know you've heard that a million times. Well, yeah, I've heard it a million times and, uh, keep on telling me that. I can't get enough <laughs> of it. Uh, but knowing that we're brightening your week, and we're making you laugh, and we're making you enjoy wrestling again, maybe that you haven't enjoyed, means a, a world to me. And I'm sure you feel much the same way. Yeah, man, I'm just a wrestling fan uh, along for the ride here, and I don't consider myself, you know, the engineer of the show. I'm the first listener because everybody wants to hear what Tony Schiavone has to say, me included. And I'm excited to do the show with you, and one year down, and hopefully many more to grow on. And if you'd like to talk to Tony, you know, I don't want to turn this into a commercial, but it is kind of our gimmick, man. Go over to LoisRules.com and pick up a shirt, and he's going to give you a call and thank you. And I guess we should go ahead and get it out of the way. I think we have the best shirt we've ever had up right now. Have you seen the latest shirt at LoisRules.com? Yes, I have. If we're thinking about the same thing, go ahead. Well, we get lots of questions about what you were saying all those years because you used a phrase to describe a series of moves inside of a wrestling match, and a lot of people wanted to know, were you saying full arm dragon twist or full arm drag and twist. And we decided to have some fun with it. So there is now a full arm and then a picture of a dragon twist t-shirt. You've got to see this. It's lowestrules.com. That's up for your enjoyment right now. Maybe my new favorite is the Shivani wedding 2018. We've all seen these goofy like wedding or family reunion shirts. Well, now we've got one for the Shivani wedding and that's really the genesis for the whole podcast. And then right in the middle on the top row is uh, maybe our most controversial shirt ever. We told the story a couple of weeks ago about a Sharpie shirt that uh, we no longer have for sale, but now we have our own new version and it's Conrad eyes. <laughs> and uh, it's in the Shoney style font. And we encourage you right there on the shirt to try the hand cubes. So pick up a shirt at lowestrules.com. And if you're taking that to a convention, be sure to get it autographed with a Sharpie by those we do not speak of. Anything else we should mention about LoisRules.com, Tony? Uh, I'd just like to mention as a result of all this, uh, this downloads uh, today on the 29th of January, right? Right. Today, I have have, uh, made my final payment for the Shivani wedding. Now... That's the final payment for the rehearsal. I mean, not the rehearsal, the reception, which, as everybody knows, and you're going to know one day very soon, is the most expensive part of a wedding. So that's done, and now I'm just kind of funneling some other money to my my daughter for things she's paid for. But the biggest nut is done. Thank you very much. So we'd like to announce that in celebration of our one-year anniversary, this is also our last show. Thanks for the memories. You keep saying that. It's almost that you say you said that on Twitter, and and you say that, and as is, I'm I'm in for the long haul, man. I I uh, 
I really am. Well, I'm listen, long. you said at first we, we were shutting it down, and I just rolled with it. That's all I rolled with it. Okay. Uh, sometimes I, you know, you know how I am. You, 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 and I talk, you know, away from this, and and you know how I am. You, you say, you know, you are the most uh, paranoid, insecure, miserable motherfucker I've ever talked to in my life. And I say, yeah. Tell me something I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we should do, do a little peek behind the curtain before we talk about the pay-per-view. You know, I don't know why people do this, but there is at least one person out there who's made it their mission to try to get you canned from your broadcasting jobs. They are constantly tweeting at various folks who you do some work for and trying to use what we talk about our silliness here on the show. Cause that's what it is, guys. It's a gag. It's a bit, it's comedy. It's funny. Ha ha. Don't take all this that seriously. And they're trying to use it as leverage to get you fired, which is just, I don't know, maybe the most ridiculous thing that happened in 2017. So I could see why you would be a little reluctant to get on here and let hundreds of thousands of people here, you tell ridiculous stories about Klondike Bill chomping on parking lot panties. And right. for the record, whether it happened or it didn't happen, and that definitely happened, this is all in the entertainment genre. Don't take all of this so literally. We get lots of tweets where people think everything that we say is 100% factual. We're trying to make you laugh, guys. This is supposed to be an escape. And the idea that somebody would turn that into some sort of political stance to get you fired is ridiculous. And this is supposed to add to your life, not take away. So I get why every now and again, you're like, golly, is this really worth it? Well, you know what? Uh, it's, it's one person, one, isn't it amazing? And that one person still follows me on Twitter. And that one person has successfully basically kept me off Twitter. Cause I don't need to read it. Uh, I still got a Twitter account but I don't look at it that much. I'm sorry. I don't, but because I don't want to see that person and you and I talked about exposing that person, but it's not worth our time. What we are going to do though, is expose bunkhouse stampede 1988. Oh, uh, we, we have, um, we've been looking forward to this one, or at least I have, because it feels like the beginning of the end or maybe the end of the end. Downright ugly. Live Sunday, January 24th, the showdowns in New York. The third annual Bunkhouse Stampede Final with more than 20 of the top NWA wrestlers. Only the roughest. Only the toughest. Will be left standing at the end. And the payoff, one half million bucks. For a bootful of dollars, these cowboys will do anything. Everything goes, anything goes. Don't miss it. See us do what we do best. Double team, triple team. The finals of the Bunkhouse Stampede. The baddest of the bad. This is Dusty Rose, the American Dream, and I'm here to tell you they ain't nothing as bad as the Bunkhouse Stampede. And there's only one way that you can get the Bunkhouse Stampede, so I want you to listen up, that Pilgrim. For more information on how to order the Bunkhouse Stampede Championships in your own home, on January 24th, call your local cable company. You went back and watched this for the first time in a long time, and we're going to talk about the actual show, but let's go a little prior to that when you first heard of the concept of the match bunkhouse stampede because you guys have been doing this as like a house show attraction for a while what'd you think of the concept 
Well, it, to me, it became a a cowboy concept. It became a uh, Dusty Rhodes who loves cowboy movies and you know always felt he was kind of the cowboy type. It became a concept that, uh, and that's why I thought the Nassau Coliseum was so kind of unusual to have this. I thought this would have been better in like uh, I don't know Abilene, Austin, Houston, uh, somewhere out west, even uh, somewhere in. Uh, uh, and we had had run out at the Tingley Coliseum in Albuquerque, New Mexico, something out there. But I I didn't like them. I, I, I've never liked Battle Royals, and that's kind of basically what it was. Uh, it was come as you are. We even, and I don't even know if you can find this, and it may be on, you know, the WWE Network has right now, uh, Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling on it. We've talked about that. You may be able to go back during this time and find during an episode of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, Nelson Royal talking about the bunkhouse stampede or about bunkhouse matches. And they had Nelson, they did a video with Nelson at a campfire. Come on, fellas, sit down. He had a cowboy hat on. He's at his ranch, which he really had a ranch or a farm uh, up in Mooresville, North Carolina. Uh, and I want to tell you about the, here, have a cup of coffee, tell you about the bunkhouse and what the bunkhouse match meant. So they sold it as a Western-type thing, and I, I just kind of thought it kind of lost something in translation to me. Uh, bunkhouse rules, come as you are. You know, the cowboys who were staying uh, in the bunkhouse would always get into a fight. So it, it was something, come on, let's, let's face it. It was something that was basically from the brain of Dusty Rhodes, designed for Dusty Rhodes, and designed for Dusty Rhodes to win, which he did. It's funny that you bring up, you know, the, the oddness of a pay-per-view concept like this happening in New York, because that's what Flair wrote about in his book. He wrote Crockett may have thought he was starting a revolution by promoting the world rest in the world wrestling federation's backyard, but that wasn't enough to get the fans to like the show. The Nassau Coliseum wasn't even close to full. And why should it have been as smart as dusty is sometimes he was so small minded. An old-time bunkhouse stampede, a battle royal-style match inspired by the days when farmhands fought it out by the bunkhouse may have done well in the South at one time. But in New York, Italians from the Bronx and Jews from Brooklyn couldn't have cared less about cowbells and bull ropes. Has there ever even been a bunkhouse in Manhattan? The company just seems so far behind at times. What do you think of that? That's a great comment. I'll go a step further. If we'll go back to prior to that, let's say in the 80s and 70s, but especially in the 70s, when Dusty Rhodes would wrestle in New York as a special attraction at Madison Square Garden, which he did on occasion, he would come in with a robe and a hat, kind of a fur hat on, if you'll recall the old Dusty Rhodes gimmick. He never came in as the cowboy gimmick because it didn't work up there. So why would it work now here in the Nassau Coliseum? And, and it really didn't. Uh, there's a couple of interesting things that happened during the show, but after going back and watching it, I, I realized how bad of a show it was. I guess it could have been worse. I could have been doing commentary and it would have been shit on even more. Oh my gosh. Listen to you. Uh, we should remind you that we're right upon the 30 year anniversary. That's the reason we're covering it. The 30 year anniversary was last Wednesday, January 24th. As you've probably figured out, this goes down Nassau Coliseum in long Island and uh, flair would write. I had a pretty good match with my friend, Mike Hegstrand, the late road warrior Hawk. But as far as I can recall, everything else about the card turned out to be a disaster. Vince countered the show with the first Royal rumble, then called the rumble Royale. 
on the USA network available free of charge to anyone with cable TV. The world wrestling federation was at a high point and 8 million viewers watched it. So we're deep into the counter programming and you may remember just to, I guess last month we covered, uh, or two months ago, rather star Kate 87 from Thanksgiving night, 1987. And the WWE presented survivor series on pay-per-view to sort of go head to head and, you know, jerk the rug out from under Crockett from trying pay-per-view. Well, they're back at it two months later, and this time they're doing it in Vince's backyard and the WWE again, counter programs it this time with Royal rumble 1988. And they give it away for free on USA and Bruce uh, Pritchard and I just covered that a couple of weeks ago, or I guess this past week. Uh, at uh, something to wrestle.com if you'd like to hear about that show. But let's go back and talk about Starcade 87 for a minute. Coming out of that show, we had, we had talked about Dusty had plans to run multiple pay per views in 2008, or Crockett had planned to do so. And the idea was stay with me, talent, don't jump ship. Vince only has one pay per view. But if you hang with me, I'm going to have four pay per views a year. So we won't sell as many as WrestleMania. But the combination of that pay-per-view money from four smaller shows, as opposed to one big show will net you more money. Come with me, sign this guaranteed contract. I'll make up the difference at the end of the balloon payment. That's sort of the strategy to get guys to sort of stay put and not jump ship coming out of Starcade 87. Did you guys already know that bunkhouse was next? Or when did you first learn that this will be our next pay-per-view and it'll be in January? We knew Bunkhouse was next because they were uh, starting to do all these Bunkhouse house shows in the month of December. Uh, they finished it up by doing one in January where Dusty Rhodes won that Bunkhouse match, and that would put him in as the wild card for this Bunkhouse stampede. So we already knew that would be next. Uh, so it was no surprise there. So going into this show, you guys – already know what the buy rate was or how the pay-per-view was received or when did you in the office or as a commentator, when did you discover what the overall final number for Starcade was? Is it the talk of the locker room at any point? No, it's not. And because, uh, I'm kind of, uh, pushed in the back and, and not really a part of the inner circle. Uh, I, I, I did not know what the number was. And of course I didn't read the dirt sheets as well. Those who read the dirt sheets, I guess, knew what the numbers were. Uh, but one thing I did know, I did know that Vince's efforts during uh, 1987 uh, basically uh, hurt Jimmy Crockett and hurt his uh, hurt his company. It, it, it it's been well um, it's been well documented. We've said it before as a sabotage of Starcade, And it's something really that Jimmy could not, um, uh, and never recovered from, never recovered from something else happened during this time as well. Between Starcade 87 and now in the bunkhouse stampede, uh, there was growing dissension within the boys for dusty roads and his booking and for Jimmy Crockett and his seemingly, uh, faith in dusty and loyalty to whatever dust he had. Let me read you what, um, Flair wrote in his book. After the Nassau Coliseum show, the boys ended up in Harry's bar at the Helmsley palace hotel in Manhattan. I was there. Tully was complaining about the direction of the company. 
He walked right up to Jimmy and confronted him about some of Dusty's decisions. Quote, Dusty should book himself against Dusty, he said. Jimmy didn't want to hear it and walked away. Dusty had gotten so close with Jimmy that I couldn't reason with him either. Jimmy Crockett had been a very important part of my life, but I could see our relationship changing. Here was a person who meant so much to me that I made him the best man at my wedding. I couldn't understand how Dusty could step in and con Jimmy out of that friendship. Dusty began telling stories that were too preposterous to believe. During a trip on one of Crockett's private planes, Dusty notified a group of us that we were going to try to outclass Vince by making these big Hollywood style productions. Apparently the first movie of the company's list was the life of Terry Allen, AKA Magnum TA, a handsome wrestler who suffered spinal cord damage when he drove his Porsche into a telephone pole one rainy night. We all agreed that Terry had an inspirational story that could make a decent film. Then Dusty added that Sylvester Stallone had agreed to play Magnum TA while Sally Field had committed to portraying his wife, Tamara. The only problem Dusty said was that he wasn't sure if Sally Field was really right for the part. Arn and I looked at each other and rolled our eyes. If Jimmy was dubious too, he wasn't showing it to us. So there's lots of folks who are unhappy about the dusty Jimmy relationship. You said you were at Harry's bar. What do you remember about that night in Manhattan? Well, here's what I remember. I remember the line that, that Flair put in his book where, uh, Tully said, dusty Rhodes should wrestle dusty Rhodes. He said that line to me in the limousine, uh, going back. And if I recall, and I think I'm right, there were two separate limousines going back and I wasn't in the limousine with Arn Tully and JJ. Uh, and Flair was in another limousine. I don't, I'm not so sure who was with him. But he said that line to me, uh, and when we got to Harry's bar, he went and confronted Jimmy with it. Jimmy said something that night that kind of took me aback. Now, let let me preface this by saying that I was always a supporter of Dusty Rhodes. I thought he had some true – there was no question. He had no one put as much effort and thought into uh, booking matches. He had – and up until this time, he had made some pretty big money for Jimmy Crockett. I don't think there was any question. I remember that night, I don't know if it was after uh, Tully confronted him or before, and I think it was after Tully confronted Jimmy because I was there. Jimmy kind of shook his head, and he said that Dusty Rhodes was a genius. I remember him saying that line, and and I remember thinking to myself, I love Dusty, I love his booking, but doesn't Jimmy see what's going on? Lex Luger should have won the bunkhouse stampede. That was talked about in the limousine when I was talking to Tully and Arn and J.J., going to the Harry's bar at the Hemsley palace. And, and the reason was, and I think Tully or, uh, maybe Arn said it, that if Luger is going to be the top star that we're pushing him to be, then he should have gone over in the thing. But Dusty successfully put himself over again. When Dusty went over in the bunkhouse stampede, won the boot and won the half million dollar prize. I was shocked. I thought Lex Luger was going to win the thing. And I didn't know what was coming down. So when Luger didn't win it, everybody was upset. Uh, things were not going well. Uh, things were down since Starcade and the and what happened at Starcade, and we were all shocked. And Jimmy said that night uh, that Luger or that Dusty Rhodes was a genius, a line that we had heard many times. But it looked, it sounded like to us he was still hanging on to that. Uh, and also something happened that night which was very surprising, uh, Gene Okerlund showed up at Harry's bar 
And it's the first time I had met Gene Okerlund. And he was there. He said he was just staying there. He just was in town. Uh, and I guess that was uh, – where was the Royal Rumble at that time? Cobb's Coliseum in Hamilton, Ontario. Okay. This was very late in the night. And I guess he had flown, he had flown back. Um, there was thought that he was here to try to get Luger to go to the WWE. That was paranoia talking that night. Uh, but Luger was our big star and we didn't put him over the bunkhouse stampede. So Jimmy held firm to his beliefs that night at Harry's bar while everybody was pretty pissed off. And of course, you know, the later the night gets, the more people drink, you know, and uh, the more people, you know, I mean, let's, let's face it. We're in New York city to where Cape Fabe is not what it is. If you're in Columbia, South Carolina, in other words, if you're in Columbia, South Carolina, the heels and baby face is not going to be in the same bar. At Harry's Bar in New York City, they were all in the same bar. They weren't sitting side by side at the bar, but they were in the same room. David Crockett wrote in Flair's book, the best thing for Dusty would have been for him to just book and not wrestle. He probably would we probably would have done better. He kept a lot of people down and chased a lot of fans away because he wanted to stay number one. At times, all of Dusty's ideas seemed inspired by one movie, True Grit. In our storylines, he had to come back from the dead, just like John Wayne. His creativity got stale. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. Uh, it, It got very stale at that time. And the person who made the call to keep him on top was apparently oblivious to this. David was on board with this. Uh, David kind of agreed with Tully and Arn and, and Rick and everybody, uh, that everything was stale and Dusty was losing his touch. It happens, you know, it, it happens, but it, it, it was to the point to where it was kind of oblivious. The, the revenue, the income tightening up is certainly adding to the stress. As we talked about with Starcade, they only got 20,000 pay-per-view buys. So they're selling the thing for 15 bucks. And then they're basically getting half of that because the pay-per-view provider gets the other half. So you're only starting with $300,000 before you chop it up. So the company would bring in about 150 grand from pay-per-view, which is not nearly what they had hoped for. So you combine that with the gate and whatever merchandise you sell. And at the time they were not a merchandise juggernaut. So overall, by the time you factor in your promotional costs, your satellite time, all your crews, all your costs, you know, your, for the building, it's not a huge windfall and money's really tight. And Arn and Tully feel stiffed on some payoffs and it leads to them trying to walk out. Rick tries to walk out with them. Dusty tries to console them and bring them back. Eventually Arn and Tully do come back for a little bit, but it's just delaying the inevitable. Arn would say, I felt like Tully and I had become invisible because we were no maintenance employees. We were taking a pounding, teaching the Lugers and the road warriors how to work. I'm not saying we didn't enjoy it. Those guys were our all out friends, but they were strong and green. And we were probably making a third of their money while showing them their craft. It got pretty depressing at the same time. Jimmy was doing the soft shoe. I'm selling the company. I'm not selling the company. We're going bankrupt. And I said, yeah, it's time to get off the ship. It's smoking down there. And of course this all happens at a time when Crockett has purchased the UWF from Bill Watts, and they've moved to Dallas into this 
over the top office building that we've talked about a little bit. David Crockett would say the office was extravagant to say the least. It was a castle, all granite and marble. If I'm correct, we took over the whole floor as well as a lease of the building. I think dusty wanted to come back home to Texas as the conquering hero and people let their egos get in the way of good business decisions. When airline costs were pretty hefty, we had a 16 passenger Gulfstream. It was like a G one turbo prop and was efficient in a 500 mile radius. Then we bought a jet, a small Falcon 20 and things became illogical. Jimmy bought dusty and Mercedes and started paying for these lavish trips for wrestlers spending with no regard. He was snake bit. This is all happening at the same time. Is it not Tony? It's happening at the same time. And give me some, uh, uh, instances where everything's extravagant. We worked. I'm trying to think of what town it was. A couple of towns in, um, it ended up being just a real clusterfuck couple of towns in Canada. One was Brantford, Ontario. Uh, and I can't remember the other town was Jimmy and Dusty took the Falcon and commuted back and forth after the, the two events to New York city to hang out in New York city. Uh, there were a lot of times that they would go out and go to California or somewhere and they would take the Falcon and go back and forth to Las Vegas to hang out in Las Vegas. Yeah, that's a lot of money to, you know, put that plane in the air just to just to go to different locales that weren't the actual places you were wrestling. They did that a number of times. And there was no question that the money was really being pissed away. I mean, you could see it. You could, we just we just couldn't keep up with it and there's a lot of people that say, "Well, when he bought the UWF and created the wrestling network, that was the final blow, and it could have been financially, but it 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 kind of started before that. It's worth mentioning that um, Flair tells a story about being on a plane when they had to land to get fuel, and the Crockett credit card was declined, and the pilot actually had to put the fuel on his own card. He also tells another story. He says, one day David Crockett looked at me like his best friend had died. Rick, he said, I don't believe this. They've run up a hundred thousand dollars in airfare on my personal diners club card. It was just out of hand. Uh, he would also say in his book, flair, this is by now Crockett promotions was divided into two camps, dusty and Jimmy on one side, myself and the other Crockett's David, Jackie, Francis, and the majority of the office staff on the other. We were all still killing them east of the Mississippi, but we were dying west of the Mississippi. Whatever we were spending, the return didn't match the output and the company's money was no longer good in a lot of places. There's been a theory, Tony, over the years that had, and and Rick has said this a lot, had Crockett not tried to expand globally or even nationally and just stayed a regional East coast, mid Atlantic territory, they would have been in business for years to come. Your thoughts. Well, I don't know how many more years to come they would have been in business uh, with cable, uh, with uh, Vince expanding the way he was expanding, with Vince's television show uh, looking uh, the way it looked on a national basis. I'm not so it probably would have it lasted a lot longer. I, I'm not so sure that Conrad how much longer it would have lasted, but there was a feeling, and it, it, it's well documented. You just talked about there was a feeling that that Dusty took Jimmy and went to Dallas 
and said, fuck Charlotte, North Carolina. And the Crockett's family thought, you know, the Crockett family was big in Charlotte, North Carolina. They had a great name. Uh, they had a great, uh, great respect in the business world in Charlotte uh, and a great line of credit, from what I understood, at, at many of the banks. And Charlotte is a, is a big banking capital, as you know, with Bank of America now. And before then, I don't know uh, what they called themselves. One time it was NCNB. And they and Jimmy just walked away from that. Now Jimmy still lives in Dallas to this day, so he still has removed himself from Charlotte. But there was a feeling that that he walked away from Charlotte, and there was a feeling in the office that Dusty coerced him into doing that. Whether that's actually true or not, I don't know. But that was the talk. Um, and it's funny. I go back. You were saying that Arn Anderson uh, talked about he and Tully being uh, low maintenance employees. Uh, listen, Tully Blanchard was not low maintenance. <laughs> Tully Blanchard was a was a very outspoken guy. If he didn't like something, just like we talked about earlier, confronting Jimmy at uh, at Harry's bar, he confronted him about it. So right. he was he did not keep his mouth shut. Arn was you know very much let kind of let Tully do the talking, uh, and was but Tully was a very high maintenance guy, very outspoken. So, but it was a feeling that uh, that they just went to Dallas. They spent all the money. Now we've got two jets. I flew on the on the Gulfstream many times, on the Falcon a couple of times, uh, and uh, it always seemed that if you were on the Falcon with always Jimmy and Dusty, and a lot of times Flair was on there, uh, and a lot of times you know the Horsemen were on there, that you uh, that you were living the high life, and spending too much money. And about the Diners Club card, I can tell you this. Here's an inside thing. Uh, a guy named David Johnston was the uh, controller, uh, and David needed some help in travel as far as uh, as far as adding up how much we were spending for travel. And so he would get the Diners Club bill in that had David Crockett's name on it and would hand it to me, and I would write up this ledger sheet about how much money we spent for travel for this town and travel for this town and travel for this town. And I would break it down for him. It was one of the the small jobs they gave they gave me when I started working full time there. I can't tell you to this day how much we spent per venue, but I can tell you those diner club cards bills were enormous. And of course, now you know I'm just a kid. I'm out of college. Uh, I've been out of college what seven years now, and um, I'm still in my twenties barely. And uh, to me, those figures were like astronomical. But David Crockett is right. They put a lot, a lot of money on his Diners Club card, and I got to see the bills. You, uh, you did some other office work like that. Do you have an idea what a Dusty Rhodes would have made in '87? Oh yeah, I do. Uh, let me tell you how I know. Uh, another one of the office, uh, one of the office things that uh, that they had me do was go through each and indiv- each individual, and this was back, you know. Uh, uh, back in, I guess, uh, when computers were running DOS, right? Right. Uh, and each each wrestler had his own page, and his own. They had me go in and write down the list of how much this wrestler was making, how much this wrestler was making, how much this wrestler was making. Uh, they had three girls who work in the office, but they were swamped, so they had me do a little office work. This was in the middle of the summer, and this had to be in '87. And so they had me go and, and the guys they had me check were not the big names, but I'm thinking, 
man, I've got access to this shit. I'm going to find out what the big names are making. And as of the middle of the summer of 1987, Dusty and Ric Flair both made in excess of a half a million dollars. Wow. So they were on their way to a million dollar year in 87. Because the big, the big, uh, the big events were yet to come. Right. Right. Because uh, the big, the uh, big business was always after the summer. So yeah, it was, uh, and I remember looking at it just going, and I there was like an uh, an F five or an F six button, and I could, you know, I could uh, kind of circle through them or cycle through them, and I would go Virgil Reynolds, Richard Flair, and I go, holy shit! Uh, to me, it was so they they both made over a, were making over a half million dollars, and I think if I remember correctly, and I think I do, I don't know which one, but one was like five hundred and sixty thousand and some odd dollars by the middle of the summer. So like June, July, August, somewhere yeah. in there. Right. Yeah. So they're, they're going to be well over 700, 800, maybe even a million, depending on how the year finishes. Yeah. No question. Well, it's funny that, you know, all this money's flying around and the company is doing so poorly, but a lot of it is just because it got, you know, I, I don't know if we could say the company lost focus or they kind of took their eye off the ball, but the weekend before bunkhouse Stampede, they run St. Louis. And the show is an hour late because they were doing a double show, uh, a double shot that day. And the matinee show in Charleston ran too long. They managed to draw $50,000 at, at the gate and they had 5,900 folks paid, but it's weird to see that like the rocket and express who were advertised weren't there because they were double booked because there's just so much going on. People are sort of losing sight. And I find it weird when we're having a conversation about how expensive airfare is that were running a show in Honolulu. Uh, they ran one in Honolulu for a near sellout, 7,200 fans. But then on the way home, they do a shot in LA and they only draw 3000 people, which makes you wonder why the fuck are you running LA and paying air to get everybody and all your stuff out there for only 3000 when you can outdraw that no problem on the East coast. Right. Um, they had eight no shows on that LA show. Mostly because they decided that the airfare was too costly. So they've advertised eight names that aren't going to make it now because they don't want to spend the money on the airfare. Um, and then for this pay-per-view, what we're going to cover today, bunkhouse stampede, this is the most WCW thing ever. And WCW is not even there. That's not even a thing yet. <laughs> this pay-per-view was promoted with a 7 p.m. start time. All the advertisements that you'll find for this say the show starts at 7 p.m. The tickets that they sold to fans, and you can actually check this out. I can't believe this is real. Uh, the tickets say 8 o'clock. And the actual show, they went ahead and started that day <laughs> at 635. Uh. Now, not all of the tickets said eight o'clock, but the first batch of them did before they realized, oh, wait. So there's two sets of tickets out there. Ones that say eight and ones that say seven. So that's the reason when you watch this show, it feels like there's pockets of empty spots. They don't know the fucking show started. I mean, imagine if you are all fired up, you're a huge NWA fan. You don't really like the cartoonish presentation of the WWF. And the NWA is finally coming to New York and they're doing it for a pay-per-view. This is a big deal. And so they come to town. You're excited. Your ticket says eight o'clock. You get there and sit down and realize, oh shit, the show already started. And an hour later it's over. 
because they only had a two and a half hour show. It started at eight. It's done by nine people at the end of the show were booing and chanting refund. Now, maybe they were booing the card. Maybe they were booing that dusty won, or maybe they're booing this, maybe the most prominent logistical fuck up in the history of big time wrestling at that point. Right. There's a lot of logistical fuck ups and that was one of them. Uh, we can go, I can go back and tell you that, and this was by no account of our own, uh, you know, back then we would uh, tape television shows live to tape and we would tape, uh, mid Atlantic championship wrestling and worldwide wrestling and have a little break between maybe a dark match between one time in Cincinnati, the, uh, the ring broke and the Klondike bill and his crew had to fix the ring and it took, and this is around that time. And I'm thinking it's 88, uh, or actually I'm thinking it's probably around 87. And the reason I'm thinking that is that that was around the time that Reed flair was born. And we were in Cincinnati at that time and talking to Rick about his son being born. I know that's downer to talk about that, but I'm, I'm just remembering things from my past that kind of put them all together. We were in Cincinnati. The ring broke that night and we made people stay two hours between shows before we even taped another show. And we wouldn't just tape matches. You said you had to watch an hour show. You had to wait through a commercial break, three minutes, five minutes, a commercial break before another match would take place. Um, so that was one of the things that I, I can just remember all of this coming together. And I remember the talk being about, you know, these tickets, uh, these tickets are incorrect. Both of them. The one that says eight o'clock is wrong. The one that says seven o'clock is wrong. And we're going to start at six 30. And I remember someone saying, well, they're just getting some bonus stuff. And I remember thinking they're not getting bonus stuff. They'll get here and they'll think they've been fucked out of yep. something that they paid for, yep. which is what they basically what they were. And I remember distinctly because I was the ring announcer, the booing that you heard at the end of it was not necessarily because that dusty had won, because I think dusty had a lot of his fans. And I think that's, he got a very big pop that night. I think it was because this event was all of a sudden over. And a lot of the people got there at 8 o'clock, only saw an hour's worth of stuff, and missed some good shit, or what they thought was good shit at that time. And I think a lot of people expected the show on pay-per-view to be three hours. It's not three hours. Um, I guess no, but before we start talking about the show, let's sort of hit some of the news at the time. Um, Meltzer would write, in recent weeks, the promotion has lost Terry Taylor. For no apparent reason, other than the fact that apparently several folks held a vendetta against him for leaving the promotion in 85 and decided to punish him for it two years later. Now, Tony, you've told us before, you believe that the real story is, um, he was doing an impression of dusty in the locker room. Dusty didn't like it. And dusty ran him out. Right. Yep. That's what I believe. Another thing worth mentioning here, big Bubba Rogers, this is all from the observer who they had turned into a great gimmick and had become a good worker as well. He's off to New York. Uh, and apparently the rock and roll express quit this afternoon from all the reports out of New York, as they were apparently unhappy about their push and the odds of Steve Williams returning are less than 50, 50 for reasons that everyone who has followed the plight of the UWF can understand. Sean Royal quit as well as names like Chris champion, Brad Armstrong and Eddie Gilbert, all might as well have disappeared, all of whom could be used in fresh angles. And there are many others looking to get out as well. Big right. Bubba Rogers feels like the example though, of what's possible because he comes in, he's a big dude 
and they're not doing much with him and slowly, but surely they start to do something with him. And when he jumps ship, he's pretty prominent on WWF TV in a hurry. Yeah. Big boss man becomes a big star. This UWF thing, this uh, Dr. Death, Steve Williams, Eddie Gilbert, Brad Armstrong. This was another uh, really sticking point with a lot of the guys when they bought the UWF. There was a thought that now we're going to get an influx of fresh talent, but it, it always seemed that Dusty wanted to always make sure that the NWA talent, the Mid-Atlantic talent, was perceived as bigger stars than the guys who were in the UWF. Right. And I don't know if that was ego. Maybe that was ego talking. If so, it was wrong because they they probably should have been seen on e- as equal footing, but they weren't. They were they were always seen as as just a little bit below us. And that was not good business. I mean, and for even someone like me who had only been in the business since 83, I even knew that. I even knew that. No, we bought all this UWF television and, and all these stars. And now gee whiz, they're, they're being seen as secondary to our guys. It was not right. Do you remember having a conversation with Ricky or Robert about why the rock and roll express quit? Uh, no, I didn't have a, a conversation in a, about about them at all with them at all. It just was kind of well-known that everybody was upset. Um, Meltzer wrote the NWA's problems do not stem from the WWF successes. In most cases, yes, the WWF cost the millions on Thanksgiving and outmaneuvering them for the pay-per-view market that they didn't, um, they didn't help the many tonight as I write this and running opposition to their pay-per-view show. And they don't help in blocking the NWA out of several of the major arenas in this country. And here's the thing that really caught my attention here. And probably as important as anything, they don't help in putting the paranoia in the NWA, especially since the Bubba departure of who will be next, which in some ways may be partially responsible for why Dusty gives himself such a big push. He knows that McMahon won't steal dusty roads. And I recognize it's not easy to step down from the limelight gracefully. There's been some talk, you know, about the AWA and its dying days. And the reason that Larry Zabisco was the world champ is because he was in, he was a, a family member of Vern Ganya. And so Vern felt like, well, he's not going to leave me. Do you right. think there's any truth to, you know, a few minutes ago, you're saying, Hey, Luger should have won this thing. But, oh, by the way, when we saw Mean Gene at the bar, everybody thought, oh, shit, he, they're here for Luger. Right. Maybe there is a little bit, uh, you know, uh, in hindsight, there is some logical rationale in Dusty trying to book himself to win it because he knows, well, I'm not going to leave us high and dry. Uh, that, that, was some, right, that was talk. There was also talk that Dusty did this because Dusty always, uh, when he wanted something done the way that he had envisioned it, it was best for him to do it himself. And that was a lot of the talk there as well. I don't know if, if that makes any sense to you or not. I don't, I don't know if people say, ah, that's bullshit. A lot of people thought that was bullshit as well. But uh, the booker, he has an envision, a vision about what he wants to happen. And the best way for it to happen is for him to do it himself. One of the other things that they're covering a lot here in the Observer is the way that Rick Flair had been handled and, and Meltzer sort of freestyles that the turn that the company really needs is Rick Flair just to be a baby face. He writes, it's totally ludicrous at this point to have your lead heel as someone who is more popular than almost everyone in the promotion, despite the fact that he actually plays heel superbly. 
but that can't even be done right now because of the Luger turn and the fact that they don't have another heel who can carry the load on that side. At this point, they should have had dusty Rhodes turn heel and feud with the road warriors. But of course that will never happen right. as a reminder, dusty had made himself six man tag team champions with the road warriors. Lex yep. Luger had just been a horseman and Rick kicked him out. And they're going to have Barry Windham team with Luger a couple of months from now, win the tag titles, but then they're going to drop them when again, Windham turns on Luger. So there's a, at least some logical thinking in, Hey, if he's the guy who's getting the most cheers, let's let him be the guy to carry the heavy water. But they had to sort of booked themselves into a corner. Do you think that could have worked? Ric Flair's yeah. baby face here. Yeah, I think it could have worked. Uh, in a, in a perfect world, it could have worked, but it never could have worked with Dusty Rhodes being the booker. God, I love him. I mean, and, and I love his family. And the, I was very close to him. But Dusty was going to be the number one baby face in the territory. He was. For I don't for many, many reasons that we talked about. Uh, Rick should have been it. It was never going to happen with Dusty Rhodes running the company, which he was doing. Let's start talking about the actual pay-per-view itself. The only match that didn't air on the pay-per-view saw Sting and Jimmy Garvin beat the Sheep Herders by DQ in a decent opener. Do you remember that match? Nope. I mean, I never saw it, so I can't comment on it, but it is kind of an odd pairing Sting and Jimmy Garvin against what would be the Bushwhackers. Yeah, I remember there's, uh, as the Bushwhackers uh, or the Sheep Herders, they were very well known as guys who got a lot of juice. Right. Uh, but they didn't get a lot of juice that night because you didn't want to overjuice things in a town that had a sports commission. Now that makes sense. Next up yeah. is the first match on the actual pay-per-view. And if you watched it on the network this week, Lord bless you. Um, the first match is Nikita Koloff. He goes to a 20 minute draw with Bobby Eaton to retain the NWA TV title. Meltzer would write four things happened in this match at seven minutes and 30 seconds. They did a high spot. At 10 minutes, Bobby was posted twice and took a hip toss on the arena floor. At 13 minutes, Bobby did a drop kick off the top rope. To say Nikita did nothing would be giving more of a compliment than he deserves. Huh. Bobby held the hammer lock on until the last 35 seconds, and then they slugged it out. After the bout, Stan Lane showed up, and they doubled on Nikita for a few seconds. And this is a candidate for the worst match of the year. Negative yeah. two stars. Wow. This was brutal. And Meltzer would write somewhere in this same issue of the observer, um, that there were personal reasons why Nikita's matches may have been so bad as of late because his head wasn't into him. He was going to be taking a sabbatical and, um, Meltzer writes, please don't jump to the conclusion. This is drug related. In fact, it's nothing he has any control over. Do you remember hearing that Nikita was maybe struggling at the time. And what'd you think of this match? Well, negative two stars is pretty bad to give a, a match that Bobby Eaton is involved in. Uh, you know, uh, I, I thought Bobby did as good as he could with Nikita. Now, if this was around the time that Nikita's, uh, girlfriend, wife or whatever was, was sick. Is, is does that correlate? Uh, maybe is, so. I'm not sure. Is, is, uh, his girlfriend who was Mandy, a girl from Alabama, uh, Boaz, Alabama, Boaz, Alabama, uh, got sick, uh, and, uh, died of cancer. And this may have been around the time where she was sick. 
There's also something about Nikita that, and I think that people don't realize that, that I realized because I knew Nikita very well. Uh, I think Nikita wants the super heel uh, Russian nightmare, that team with Ivan Koloff, I think once that ran its course, that I think Nikita kind of fell out of love with wrestling. I don't think wrestling was important to Nikita uh, anymore. And it may have been because he fell in love with this girl named Mandy. I don't know if the time is right. Some of our fans out there may may know and may remember that. Uh, but, uh, you know, Nikita also was a very uh, odd guy in that he he changed his name from Scott Simpson to, to Nikita S. Koloff. That's his real name now. He legally had that change, and that cost a little bit of money. And he had that change because uh, he ne- didn't necessarily like his family. Um. So there was a lot going on in Nikita's mind at that time. Let me uh, mention. What's let me, that? Let me mention that um, the the effect on business here from one month to another is huge. Uh, the last time they were here at Nassau, they were here November twenty fifth. So they're there two months later. Uh, when they were here in November for War Games, they drew a hundred and twenty six thousand dollar gate. Uh, that's according to Jim Cornette. Cornette would say they drew 80,000 for this. And, um, he says originally there was supposed to be a match with Stan lane taking on Jimmy Garvin, but it was scrapped for time, but to sort of placate the midnight express, uh, both, uh, Bobby Stan and Jim all got a $5,000 payoff for this okay. pay-per-view compared to Starcade 87, where they all got $10,375. Mm. Do you remember, um, any of the boys, whether it was Nikita or Bobby or you know anybody talking about their payoffs this night as to whether or not they were disappointed? Well, Cornette talked about it a lot, and that was well known. Uh, Tully Blanchard talked about uh, payoffs and how much he didn't like it. Never heard anything from Bobby nor Stan about that. And Arn and I, who were very good friends, Arn uh, kind of stayed away from that with me. I don't know, you know, maybe Arn thought that I was a, an office stooge. I don't know, which I wasn't. You know, one of the most famous stories involving Arn Anderson involves him talking to you about shampoo. And now we want to tell our listeners that support for today's show comes from an innovative shampoo. We're talking about Control GX. And Tony, you probably know about this. It's the first gray reducing shampoo from Just For Men. Just For Men actually helps men look their best so they can celebrate who they are what they achieve and how they feel. They relentlessly innovate and deliver smart hair care technology that does work for you. We're talking about making it radically easier to get that natural look you really want. And now reducing your gray is as easy as washing your hair with control GX. Just use as you would your regular shampoo until you see what you like. Subtle, natural looking results, shampoo in, rinse out and move on. It's that easy. And most guys are going to get the results they want in about two weeks. So look forward to a smart look because when you look as good as you feel every date night, every meeting, every guy's night out, there will be something to look forward to. Conrad, hold on to your seats. I've been using just for men for many, 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 many years, but I've been using the just for men for mustache and beer for many years. Great stuff. 
it it helps it helps me feel and stay young. It helps Lois kiss me on my cheek all the time, say, "Oh, you look so young," and I know you're not. And she'll kiss me on the cheek, and I'll say, "That's just for men. I colored in my beard." So now, with Control GX, it can help you get the look that you want, and it's easy. Shampoo in, rinse out, and move on. You can get 25% off Control GX by using this code. Happened. H-A-P-P-E-N-E-D. And go to controlgx.com. Put in the the, uh, word happened. That's the code. You get 25% off Control GX at controlgx.com. All part of Just for Men. And that is something Tony Schiavone has been a part of for many, many years. everybody. I'm Sean Mooney in the MLW Event Center with the latest from the MLW Universe. MLW returns with a night of great wrestling action featuring the opening round of the MLW World Championship Tournament on Thursday night, February 8th in Orlando. See Matt Riddle versus Jeff Cobb, MVP versus Tom Lawler, Shane Strickland versus Brody King, and England's most dangerous man, Jimmy Havoc, taking on MJF. In non-tournament matches, Chelsea Green looks for payback against Priscilla Kelly. Also, those scheduled to appear include Low Key, Selena De La Renta, Jason Cade, Jimmy Yuta, and Barrington Hughes. Don't miss this big card in Orlando on February 8th. It's the road to the World Championship. Tickets available now at MLWTickets.com. Meanwhile, over on the MLW Radio Network, get in the spirit for the Royal Rumble with Marty and Sarah as they relive their favorite past events and anticipate this Sunday's, all with the help of their favorite buddies. This Thursday morning, Marty and Sarah love wrestling. In a new Eastern Lariat episode, Striga and Dylan talk about the key differences between New Japan and All Japan Pro Wrestling and discuss Noah's navigation for the future, as well as DDT's D-King Grand Prix 2018. Over at MLWVIP.com, MSL and Kevin Sullivan discuss WWE's plans for WrestleMania season, WCW selling merchandise in Japan, the December 22nd, 1997 WCW Monday Nitro, and much, much more on Kevin Sullivan's hell of a deal. Meanwhile, Dirty Dutch Mantel talks about breaking into wrestling during the Battle of Atlanta and orchestrating the Knockouts division in TNA. Plus more on Dutch Mantel's Rum Diaries, which you can hear each and every Tuesday on MLWVIP.com. And on Primetime with Sean Mooney this week, we welcome one of the most popular superstars in the history of the WWE, the one and only Tito Santana, a man who had a mission and completed it all for his family. And let me remind you once again, escape from the cold weather Head to Orlando for a long weekend on February 8th and catch MLW Wrestling live. For as low as $15 a ticket, learn more at MLWTickets.com. Now it's time to get back to your favorite MLW podcast. I feel like Larry Zabisco probably rocks a little just for man, and he's up next taking on Barry Windham. They go 19 minutes and 16 seconds, and... Meltzer would write the first seven minutes were slow paced with no sustained action. Then Zabisco started working on Wyndham's injured knee 
from the Tully Blanchard match in Richmond that aired the day before on WTBS. Meltzer says the last 10 minutes were very good. Some solid sounding punches and excellent selling by Wyndham. And he says Wyndham does the best glassy eyed routine in the business. After a referee bump, Wyndham pins the Bisco and baby doll counted to three. Wyndham thought it was the referee. So he gets up like he won it. And then he sees the ref and turns his back to Zabisco. At that point, baby doll hands Zabisco the high heel. Larry Z punches Wyndham and gets the pin. Meltzer gives it a star and a quarter. So he's hmm. really down on the bunkhouse stampede. We're two matches deep. What'd you think of this Zabisco Wyndham match? I, th- I liked it. I, with the exception of the length of time that these matches took, I, I thought this was, uh, probably the best match on the card. Uh, because at a finish, even though it was, you know, baby doll using her shoe. I, I liked it a lot. I think a lot of this, uh, this uh, rating point by Dave Meltzer is based on the fact that the, the show itself is not that good. Uh, he's right about Barry Wyndham uh, doing, uh, Barry used to call it the the walk of death, where he would stand up and do that glassy-eyed walk. Right. Uh, there are, there were many, many house shows that I, at at the at the Omni, at the Charlotte Coliseum and even out West, when I worked out West, when I was a ring announcer, that Barry would do that death walk, glassy eyed death walk towards me and chase me around the ring. Uh, he would start walking towards me and I would get up and run because I knew that if Barry had a chance to fall on me, he'd fall on me. Uh, so I, I was a uh, front row ringside, so to speak for that walk many times. Uh, Barry is a great worker. Larry was a great worker. They both could talk. They both were very, very good. I think it's uh, a much better match than what was it? One and a quarter stars or one and a half stars. Yeah. Or, one yeah. and a quarter. Yeah. I, I think it was the best match on the card. Next up, we've got road warrior Hawk beating Rick flair by DQ after 21 and a half minutes. So of course flair retains, uh, Meltzer's kind of high on it. He gives it three and a quarter stars. And he says it would have been four stars or maybe four plus, except for the finishing second. Although the finishing sequence itself was good until the very weak climax. Um, of course the story here is going to involve a little interference from JJ Dillon in a chair. Uh, eventually the referee sees flair hit Hawk with the chair and that earns the DQ. A lot of people were high on road warrior Hawk as a potential superstar as a single. What did you think of this match and his shot at the world title? I'm glad he got a shot at the world title. He looked the part. He was a, he looked like a badass. He talked like a badass. Flair did a hell of a job of making him a Superman in this match. What ruined it for me was the finish of the match. Uh, I don't know why Flair couldn't have gone over. Uh, and uh, again, that it, yeah, it's, it's 30 years later, Tony Schiavone booking. I understand that, but I didn't like the finish of the match and the fans booed the fact and even when I announced it later as ring announcer, uh, that road warrior Hawk wins, but Ric Flair retains the title. Um, the fans booed that I, I didn't like the finish of it, but I think that Flair did a hell of a job of turning him into, you know, or maintaining his, uh, Superman status. The, the thing I didn't like about it in reliving it is, and if you watch this event, on the WWE network, for some reason, some of the match was cut out. You didn't get to see the entrance of the match. You didn't get to see, I don't know how much of the match was actually cut out, but some of it was. Yeah. The, the entrance missing the entrance of a road warrior match or a Ric Flair match feels like you're getting gypped a little bit. And I found it interesting to watch this back too, because 
Flair was notorious for having hundreds of pairs of boots and always wanted to look his best for the big shows. So he's got a cool robe that we don't see until the ending package. I think that robe is owned by Darius Rucker. Um, but his boots here, the toes are just worn out. Like this, these are house show boots. And yeah, I, right. I wondered, I almost texted Rick to say, Hey dude, uh, did you forget your boots that day? What the hell? Because that's not something you would normally see on a big show, right? No, that's not. But then again, we go back and, you know, uh, years later now we're, you know, into nostalgia. We're into, uh, uh, boots and all of his attire. So I, I'm not so sure it was as big a deal back then as it is now. Well, it was to him, you know, back then he wasn't wearing the same suit on TV if he could help it. Yeah. Um, Meltzer would write in the observer, the treatment of flair, is such an old subject, but everyone that calls it up, that calls brings it up. And I can't understand when these guys will wake up and realize their world title can't draw $10 at the gate anymore. And the reason is because they've destroyed the credibility of their champion. And Meltzer specifically brings up the idea that, you know, they didn't have three hours of satellite time or so it would seem because there were tons of complaints from those who were watching the show on pay-per-view and inside the building. He says, I just can't express how negative the live crowd reaction really was. The next time JCP does a pay-per-view, they should really reserve three hours on the satellite. The business of running short shows pisses fans off, even though all the matches had adequate time. Pay-per-view fans expected the entire card, and the live fans expected the show to last at least past 9 p.m. The ticket starting time snafu made things worse, and in addition, on Titan's big network extravaganza and pay-per-view extravaganzas, they get their hottest characters like Honky Tonk, Savage, Hogan, DiBiase, Andre, whomever out there for interviews. In fact, on this night, Andre and Hogan and DiBiase were all out twice. At Starcade, neither Cornette, Dusty, Flair, none of their top talkers spoke. Instead, they had Jim Garvin give the worst interview of his career with Michael Hayes silent for the first time in his life. And there were other interviews where Steve Williams and Nikita Koloff, I'm still trying to figure out what they said. This time there were no interviews, a talk with flair or Hawk while they were putting up the cage or with Luger or dusty before the stampede would have helped. What do you think about that? I think in the end, them doing the credits and all that other bullshit, as opposed to interviews feels like a no brainer. Why didn't it happen? I have no answer for that. I was there as a uh, ring announcer. I could have done interviews at ringside coming up if we wanted to do that. To do that. Uh, I think what says it all about Jim Crockett promotions, maybe it doesn't say it all, but it says it all to me, is that Bob Cottle, God bless him, one of the great gentlemen, one of the great announcers of all times, read the credits during this show. Yeah. Read the fucking credits. Yeah. I had to pause it and, and let it sink in for a second that I was actually seeing this. Right. Read. Now I know it takes time. But to the build page up. Yeah. Right. Right. And of course later, you know, years gone by, you know, they started constructing the cage and then suspending the cage and dropping it down and making it quicker. But y- y- why not? To have somebody talk in the backstage area. In addition, when they go to Bob and Jim to fill time, 
they continually have people walking in front of them. It was it, it looked like throw out the fact that the booking was was shitty. Throw out the fact that we screwed the 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 fans by not giving them everything that they thought they should have gotten. Go to the fact that it looked like what it was. It was a small time fucking promotion, not knowing what to do. It's what it was. It was a small southern mom and pop promotion going into New York City or New York State, Long Island, and showing air of the world why they are still behind Vince McMahon. It was, it was and and I I had forgotten all about the reading of the credits, but I'll get I would I would venture to say that has never been done, and never will be done again in a professional wrestling event. Reading the fucking credits. Yeah. Man, that's great TV, buddy. I'm glad I paid for that. It's what I would be saying back at home. And I was just, uh, you know, I was, was 1988. I was, I was young. I was in the business, not business a long time. And I even knew that was bad back then. And boy, had I forgotten about that. And watching this bunkhouse stampede refreshed my memory badly. You know, it's just about that time of year when you start to get those credit card bills from Christmas time and you start to wonder, how in the world am I going to pay all of these bills, plus my car note, plus my home mortgage? Well, SaveWithBruce.com can help you do just that by consolidating all of your bills into one low monthly payment. That's right. You can future endeavor all of your debt and get it under control. Maybe even skip your next two house payments. It's SaveWithBruce.com. If you're looking to buy a new house and you need a mortgage for your home, we can help you with that. The process is simple. It's easy. Go to SaveWithBruce.com and let us help you start saving money today. SaveWithBruce.com is an equal housing lender. NMLS number 65084. Are you or someone you love a legit badass? You may have several questions. Where can I get a legit badass mug, shirt, hat, necklace, or of course the brand new legit badass wallet to rock it like jewels? We're here to help at LegitBadass.com. Go to LegitBadass.com for all of your badass needs. If you'd like to advertise on What Happened When with Tony Schiavone, contact Matt Kuhn at Matt at MattKuhn.com. That's Matt at MattKoon.com. Hey, you mentioned, or I mentioned uh, Michael Hayes a minute ago. It's reported in the Observer around this time that he had quit, and Mm. a lot of folks thought he was headed back to world class. Do you remember the falling out here? No, no, I don't remember anything about the falling out about Michael Hayes, but you know, I, I think it's, it's funny that Dave Meltzer would write, uh, for the first time, uh, <laughs> yeah, he was silent. Yeah. The, well, the only time in his career, he was silent. Uh, Bobby Eaton had missed a few shows prior to this Crockett, not Crockett Cornette would write in his book that Bobby was out with a minor injury, but Cornette, I'll get it right. Eventually Meltzer says that that's not true. Bobby Eaton's wife had given birth again. So Bill Dundee was a grandfather. Once again, do you remember why Bobby was missing some dates around here? Was it, was it an injury or the birth? I had heard it was an injury. Okay. Because, uh, Bobby was, as we always said, a hell of a hand and was, would not be the type of guy that would, that would miss time because of a baby. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
I'll make another one. Hell, I gotta go to, I gotta go to Chattanooga tonight and make some towns. <laughs> Except Bobby was like that. Bobby, you know, geez, you know, it, when it's all said and done, Bobby's going to go down as one of the, the more professional guys that's ever wrestled. He really is. Meltzer would write the announcing changes that have been made are for the better. In fact, Jim Ross did an excellent job on the pay-per-view broadcast without saying that every match was an all-time classic as he did for Starcade, to the point where it was overkill. The only oh. complaints with the show were the camera work. They showed far too many crowd shots and they've had the same problem on all their syndicated shows to the point where they wind up missing winning moves and pinfalls because they're showing the crowd instead. And the shots of the bunkhouse match were distracting because it left one with the feeling that they were missing too much action with the tight shots. I got to say, having watched rumble 88, so close to, um, bunkhouse 88, the biggest difference is the production and it is fucking night and day. Right. And that's why they, why they survived production. I don't care what anybody says. Production is the reason they survived and the reason they are what they are today. They being the WWE look, uh, Toby Jenkins was our uh, director. Toby, uh, basically directed a lot of the old mid Atlantic championship wrestling events. He is from South Carolina. When we started, uh, when we started doing our shows in 1985 at Turner Broadcasting, we had a director named Tommy Edwards. Tommy still works for ESPN today out in Los Angeles. Uh, Tommy was a director on, on the studio shows, and Tommy started this thing that we had never done before, or Jimmy Crockett had never done before, and that was taking reactionary shots of the fans in the studio. Tommy started doing that. I thought it was great. I go back to I go back to the greatest reaction shot ever done in wrestling when Hulk Hogan agreed to wrestle Andre the Giant for WrestleMania 3 on Piper's Pit. They did a reaction shot in the in the uh in the studio or in the uh in the arena that day that sold that event. And I thought reaction shots were great. Now that Tommy Edwards was doing it, setting the standard for us on TBS during the middle of the 80s, Toby Jenkins was starting to do it now as well. But Toby didn't have a good handle on it. Toby was a very good director, but he worked studio stuff in a television station in South Carolina. So he wasn't as good at it. And, of course, there was a lot of lack of communication between booking and production as to what was going to happen and what to look for. Because we were really big into okay fade back then. Well, we can't tell anybody. We can't tell the guys. And, and we can't tell uh, the production people what's going to happen. Because they may call somebody and then, uh, you know, break kayfabe. A third thing to add into this. When we were in New York, the state of New York, we had to use a lot of union guys. Who had not shot wrestling. Uh, I, I'm not trying to make an excuse for our production crew, but that was the case. There were a lot of guys. I mean, Jackie Crockett was uh, part of it. You know, he was always there to do it, but there was a lot of guys who never shot wrestling for uh, the NWA and, and that helped that hurt our production as well. Plus basically it looked shitty. It did. Everything was dark. It just looked shitty. So I think all that combined, uh, made it for just a shitty production show. All right, let's get to the main event. Bunkhouse Stampede, this is why we're here. Dusty Rhodes is your winner. 
They go 26 minutes and 21 seconds. Meltzer would write, there's lots of blood. And for what it was, it was about as good as it could be. You had several guys, not exactly noted for stamina, all going the distance. So you can excuse some of the guys resting in spots. Overall, it was brutal and bloody and basically gave what it was promised to be. Ivan Koloff, who was excellent, was the first guy out in 1642 and road warrior animal threw him over the cage and then animal and warlord went out together in 18 minutes. Then Arn, Tully, and Luger went out as a trio at 2236, leaving Dusty with the Barbarian. Finally, Conga sat on the top of the cage, and Dusty gave him a few elbows, and he took the big leap to the floor. I'm not a fan of Luger's, but he should have won the thing. There were a few cheers and a lot of boos, although those there live told me they're not sure if the fans were booing that Dusty won, since everyone already knew it once Luger went out but they were booing because they didn't like the show overall. Right. It's hard to rate, but I thought all involved worked as hard as they could and did a good job. One thing I didn't like about the Royal rumble and more so about dusties is that the faces and heels never fought amongst themselves here. It was basically faces versus heels all the way, but since it's WWF that can be excused, but dusty's thing was supposed to be a $500,000 winner take all. And Dusty and Animal on interviews talked about no friends and the like, and yet they were constantly helping each other out. I know who cares, right? What would you think of the bunkhouse stampede? I got to tell you, I know this was something you guys did as like a house show attraction for live events. And this was the third major one that Dusty had won. And I get it, but I got to say. The psychology behind this is fucking stupid. Is it not? Like, how do you get the guy over the cage? I, I get the, the mentality of trying to climb out and beat him to the floor. If it's a race to keep him in, but to try to push him up and over, it feels like strategy wise, since you can bring anything and wear anything, even on promos on the way in they're, they're interviewing the road warriors and Crockett says, you know, he can wear that, sh- uh, that gear into the cage because it's sort of come as you are. Everybody's just bringing and wearing whatever. Why don't you just go in and handcuff yourself to the fucking rope and just hang on? Right. Right. Yeah. There was no, no logic in this at all. Uh, with the exception, I just, I, I can't explain it, man. There was no logic in it at all. And the logic of maybe, uh, baby faces fighting baby faces for a half a million dollars. I, they probably, they probably should have, shouldn't they? Well, I mean, if you're saying, you know, every man for himself, winner take all, they're working together. And on the way in here, it's worth mentioning the road wars are still getting a monster push because on all the house shows, road warrior animal or not all, but many of the house shows road warrior animal had been winning these bunkhouse stampede matches that led up to this one on pay-per-view. And of course, road warrior Hawk is in there with Ric Flair. So the road warriors and dusty roads are in prime baby face positions here but that can't help the criticism that it should have been Luger in hindsight. Do you think if Luger would have really been the guy in 1988, it would have made a difference? No, of course it would have made a difference, but it probably would have made everybody backstage feel a little bit better about what was going on. Look, uh, uh, a year less than a year after that, from that Crockett is being sold and going out of business. Uh, and that's because they were spending more money than they made. And they were coming up with shitty shows, not necessarily finishes, 
but shitty shows. When I say city shitty, shitty shows, I'm talking about production-wise that we just discussed. We could not stay with them. We could not stay with them. And never in never did I realize it any more than a year later, one year later, in 1989, when I left Jim Crockett Promotions and went to work for uh, the WWF, and I saw what they had production-wise. I saw the, I saw uh, Titan Television. I saw what they put into uh, what they did on the road. I saw what they put into uh, production meetings, communication with everybody. Uh, I knew then that that was the reason they won. If you can say winners or losers, and I guess you can call them winners over Jim Crockett Promotions and eventually over WCW. It's because they knew where to put their money. They did. They knew where to put their money. Right. Jim Crockett did not. He was still doing live to tape. Jim Crockett never had an edit bay. Never had an edit bay to edit the show together. To never go in and maybe do some more commentary to get the storyline right. What you did that night is what aired. Uh, and it was just, it was uh, small. It was done small time. And that's why we lost. And I think it's very evident in this show why. Uh, and I go back to reading the fucking credits. My God. Well, and that's the thing too, the reading the credits, because some of the promos that, that led up to this were phenomenal. And I'm going to have Matt Coon add one of Dusty Rhodes' really great promos at the end of today's episode. So stay tuned for that. Coming up in a few minutes. You're going to hear that great Dusty Rhodes promo. Of course, to start the show, you heard that tremendous commercial for the pay-per-view. It just wasn't meant to be. But next week, we're going to be back at it, and we're returning to our watch-along format because we're doing something we've never done before, Tony. We've often sort of freestyled. It might be fun to go back and watch something you weren't actually there for, and we're going to do it for Clash of the Champions 10, the Texas shootout. It went down on February 6th, 1990 in Corpus Christi, and the main event, is something to see, man. It's Ric Flair, Ole Anderson, and Arn Anderson taking on the Gary Hart International, which is the Dragon Master, Buzz Sawyer, and the Great Muda. Gary Hart's hanging out as well. We've also got Doom taking on the Steiner Brothers. The Skyscrapers are working with the Road Warriors. And by the way, the Skyscrapers are Dan Spivey and Mark Callis, who would go on to be The Undertaker. We've also got Kevin Sullivan working with Norman the Lunatic. Tom Zink is tagging with Brian Pillman, taking on the mod squad. Steve Williams is working with the Samoan Savage and the match. I'm looking forward to calling the most mill Mascaris, Mr. No Yob himself taking on cactus Jack and what surely has one of the craziest bumps you've maybe never seen, uh, tune in next week. We're going to watch clash of the champions 10 together. You're going to be able to watch along live on the WWE network. If you'd like a rundown of what's coming, you can go ahead and follow me on Twitter. I've laid it all out for you. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. He is at Tony Shivani 24, and we've got a pretty fun show coming up. Is there anything on the schedule that I sent you that you're really looking forward to in particular, Tony? Well, I'm looking forward to this one because Conrad, I didn't see this one. I was working for the WWE and there a lot of times back in the WWE back then, uh, Howard Finkel would invite people over to his house to watch him, watch WW, uh, WCW stuff. Uh, and I didn't watch this one, so I'm kind of looking forward to seeing it. Uh, 
I, I did go to Howard's house and watch a couple of things, but this was not one of them. So clash uh, of the champions, 10, man, don't miss it. February 5th on February 12th. We've got something I've wanted to cover since we first announced we were doing this show. It's super brawl three, the white castle of fear. When I say that to you, Tony, what's the first thing you think of? You're laughing. White cap. <laughs> I'm thinking about eating white castles is what I'm thinking. About. I'm thinking February 12th is going to be a good time, man. Don't miss that one. If you want a funny laugh along what happened when again, man, February 12th, here we come February 19th. We're going to put it to a poll and you're going to be able to vote next week on that show. It'll either be super brawl eight from 1998 or super brawl 2001. So we can keep sort of our theme of 98 stuff going. We've just covered Starcade 97 and sold out 98. We could do the next pay-per-view or we could go to the last super brawl from 2001. And then we're going to finish out February in glorious fashion. Wrestle war 1991 is coming to you on February 26th. That's a hell of a show. We've got a little something for everybody in February, and we'd love to interact with you on Twitter. Check us out at WHW Monday on Facebook or facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. He is at Tony Schiavone 24. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. Support for today's show comes from Control GX, the first shampoo that gradually reduces gray from just for men. Just use Control GX as you would your regular shampoo until you like what you see. Subtle, natural looking results. Shampoo in, rinse out, and move on. Most guys get the results they want in just about two weeks. Look forward to a smart look with Control GX. And now get 25% off Control GX using code HAPPENED at ControlGX.com. That's H A P P E N E D. That's code HAPPENED to get 25% off Control GX at ControlGX.com. And we are out of time, right? We are out of time, but right now, two men remain in the cage for the Bunkhouse Stampede. It's the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, and the Barbarian. They are up on the top turnbuckle. They are up on the top. Dusty Rhodes has been over. Behind him is the Barbarian. And oh, my goodness, they're into the cage comes Tommy Young. Tommy Young is snuck in behind the Barbarian. He will schoolboy him over. One, two. Tommy Young beats the Barbarian in more ways than one. And we'll see you next week on What Happened When Monday on the MLW Radio Network. Do you have a question for Tony about Bunkhouse Stampede? Ask it live this Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern at facebook.com slash Monday. Don't miss your chance to ask Tony Schiavone anything you want about Bunkhouse Stampede 88. It's Dusty Rhodes, Lex Luger, Ric Flair, the Rock and Roll Express, the Road Warriors, Jim Cornette, the Midnight Express, and Jim Crockett Promotions, or anything else you can think of. 1988, this Thursday at 8 p.m. at facebook.com slash Monday. This is Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream, the buckle, the boot, the prestige, the money of the Bunkhouse Stampede. Being the baddest of the bad, being the bull of the woods, if you will. 25, 30 million, stampeding into one little bit of ring, you understand? With one thing in mind, to hush somebody, to kick somebody's booty, to twist their arm off, and put their ankles up in the chin. And many mornings I got up dwelling on the fact of being the two-time for one of the bunkhouse stampede. How am I going to do it this year? When last year I had to feel around, see if my nose was still on my face. Look up in the morning and see if my ears were still on my head. My eyeballs in the socket was, were playing steady on my mind because I knew Dusty Rhodes has to be the Bunkhouse Stampede champion.
for the third time. If you will, for your hockey fans, it's a hat trick. You understand? It's a hat trick. And Dusty Rose now comes at you with this in mind. Anywhere, any place that on the marquee you see the National Wrestling Alliance presents the Bunkhouse Stampede. If you want to just feel a little bit of how bad it is to be the baddest, to be the bull of the woods, then and only then, buy your ticket, walk in and sit down and watch Dusty Rhodes become the bull of the woods. Stops.